We, we rejoice this morning as we gather together in Christ's name because we have received from God a new robe and new wine. We've received from God things that make the sinner rejoice because we know we could not earn His favor apart from His grace, apart from His Son's work. We could never merit it on our own. And I think when we read the text in Mark, we're reminded of that in God's just divine beauty of his inspired word, he he gives us the account of Levi who could bring nothing to Jesus. And then he swings from that to the illustration of what the religious think when they see evidence of God's mercy and grace in one who was so separated, so segregated from Israel. And yet that gives us hope because we were separated and segregated from Israel. And by grace, we've been brought in. We have been granted God's favor at the expense of His Son. So I want to read the text from 13, Mark 2, 13, down to 22. We'll primarily be looking at 19 to 22, but we need to read this in light of the the fuller context. And I want you to look at the joy. Look at the joy of the forgiven sinner in relation to the attitudes of the religious leaders. Look at the the joy of the forgiven in light of the bitterness of the religious. This is is where we we find ourselves in the first half of this, I pray, and not the latter half of this, I pray. I pray that we are with Levi and his friends and the disciples of Christ rejoicing over this new robe, this new cloth, and this new wine that fills us with hope. An anticipation of God's love. It begins this way in verse 13. And Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now, I just have to pause for a second. It just amazes me as I read through Mark's gospel that, that Jesus wasn't crucified sooner rather than later. Because all the people who would flock to the synagogues and to the Pharisees we're leaving them in groves to find Jesus constantly. And, and this had to build up some sort of deep bitterness in the religious. Who is this new teacher that draws our people away from us? Jealousy and envy was in the heart of those who were the leaders of Israel at this time. And Jesus recognizes that. And it's always the case with those who are religious. They're threatened by grace. They're afraid that They can't dominate the people any longer. But grace can actually dominate the heart. That's what Christ brought to us. And here again, it says this crowd went to him. They just flocked to him again. And then verse 14 says that as he passed by, he saw Levi. Remember Levi. He is this outcast from Israel, this traitor to Israel, this scum of the earth to Israel, yet he is a Jew. And he passed by this wretch like us, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, which just blew the Pharisees away, blew the religious people away, he said to the scum, I want you. Follow me. And the scum who receives grace responds appropriately. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at his table... Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, notice the cowardly approach. They don't go to Jesus, they go to his disciples. What does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're trying to put doubt in the disciples' hearts. They're trying to draw away the disciples from Christ to themselves. This is what Jesus warned about. They're trying to make them twice the sons of hell as themselves. In verse 17, it tells us that Jesus overheard this this situation, this conversation. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, now he, he, he confronts them directly. He goes right to their face. He doesn't go to his disciples and relay a message. He goes directly to them because he is the one in authority here. And they're not. Those, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now he's, he's simply saying to them, you guys think you're righteous and therefore you don't need me. In reality, I'm not coming after the self-righteous. I'm coming after the destitute. Those who are wretches who need my healing touch because you think you're superior to me and to my work and that you're earning God's favor by your own efforts. You think you're well. But in reality, they were deathly ill. They were spiritually dead. And in verse 18, you can see that the influence of the Pharisees has affected and infected the people. The, the leaders affect the people who follow in Israel. And look what they do. You, you see them reflecting their spiritual leaders in their question. And we talked about this last week. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Then Jesus gives a couple of illustrations to explain this. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You cannot blend grace with human effort. You cannot mix grace with self-righteousness. There is no power if you do so. Because you're saying that grace is insufficient. That Christ's work is not enough if you have to add human effort or merit or works to what God has promised in the work of His Son. You can't blend and you can't mix those two. You have to rely on the one who is going to bring us all that was required to stand before a holy and righteous God. That is God's own Son. That was the promise God made in Genesis 3.15, that He would bring one who would actually accomplish what Adam and Eve failed to do in the garden. Mark 2.18 begins with this group, as I said, who were influenced by their spiritual leaders. This group of people, they, they came to Jesus. We don't really know who they are specifically. They, they probably could have been some of John's disciples. They could have been some of these, these scribes of the Pharisees, their disciples. They could have been some of those guys mixed into this crowd. We don't really know. It doesn't really matter. But this group came to him with a loaded question about why he and his disciples are ignoring the required fast. Well, well, Jesus obviously knew already there was only one required fast, and it was on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 talks about that. That's the only required fast. Why are they ignoring this fast? The fast was not required. That's why they were ignoring it. The only fast required was, again, the one in Leviticus 16. And it was a fast that represented the, the broken heart of the people, over their sin. It was an appropriate fast. But here, you see, there's, there's, a, there's a fast being put on the people because the Pharisees taught that this fast would actually draw God's attention, get God's favor. If you looked sad enough and mourned over things enough, maybe God would answer you. So if you really put on a show, you would receive something from God. And they asked him, why, why are you ignoring this required fast. And, and Jesus answers with this divine wisdom. He answers with two illustrations that describe the superiority of God's grace over the rotting rituals of men. We need to understand something about Jesus' initial ministry. When Jesus began to preach the gospel of God, you can go to Luke to see this, in Luke 4, when Jesus began his preaching ministry, 
he began by declaring immediately at the very outset of his ministry that man is rescued from his sin by divine achievement, not by religious rituals or human merit. That's what Jesus preached at the very beginning of his ministry. He was a preacher of sovereign grace. Luke 4, 16 tells us this. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, those who are spiritually impoverished, destitute. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who were captivated by sin, dominated by sin. In other words, the poor who couldn't offer anything to God and those who were captured in their sin and dead to God. He came to give something to them they could not earn on their own, which is grace and forgiveness. It says that he goes on to recover, give recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, again, oppressed by sin, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's grace, His favor, the jubilee. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is what Jesus came to preach. He came to preach that the year of God's favor had arrived with him, the king of glory. He had came himself to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to give recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed by sin. He was saying to Israel, Israel, your salvation is in me. It's not in your rituals. It's not in these passing fads that the Pharisees have brought in and mixed in with the law of God. These Pharisees had distorted everything trying to protect it from sin. And by trying to do it on their own, they infected it with sin. They took all the good laws of God and set them over here and then added all these traditions of men to, in their opinion, elevate the law of God, to protect it. So we'll put up all these, these little blocks to help you keep from breaking God's law. And they ended up adding more laws than what the Word of God required. And no one could achieve that except them outwardly. And that's why they liked it. They could parade their righteousness in front of others. They made up the rules. But their rules were not righteous. And they could never bring righteousness to the poor and the captives and the blind and the oppressed. Only Jesus could do that. Go to, in Luke, go to Luke 18 with me. During, during Jesus' day, the man-made traditions of the Pharisees taught that the godly people, the really holy people, were the ones who would set aside two days a week to fast. They had to fast twice a week. This was a completely man-made tradition. This is not given to us in Scripture at all. But they taught it, and Jesus confronted it. They taught it thinking that this twice-a-week fast would merit God's favor in some way. They did this on Mondays and Thursdays. Look what it says in Luke 18 as it describes how, how they brought this in and how it just reflects the self-righteousness of these spiritual leaders in that day. Luke 18.9 says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, that's a tax collector, unjust, that's a tax collector, adulterers, that's what tax collectors did. 
and even this tax collector. He makes sure he describes him and then he punches him. This is what these pharisaical minds did when they went into the temple. They, they actually would act this way. Jesus is giving us a portrayal of what was really going on. Obviously, Jesus would know what Pharisees prayed because he was God. This Pharisee would go on to say in this parable, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's boasting in his self-righteousness, his human effort and merits. He's saying, I do all this. That's why I'm glad I'm not like him. That's why I'm glad I have your blessing. But then Jesus says, let me, let me make sure that this is clear. You're not received by God because of what you've done. You're received by God because of what he does. Verse 13 says, but the tax collector, he's standing far off, which is an appropriate place for one who is defiled by sin. He doesn't feel like he can come to God. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector recognized his spiritual poverty, his separation from God. He had nothing to bring to God again but his sin. And Jesus says in response to this, I tell you this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The religious people in the time of Christ, the pharisaical, self-righteous religious people, let me be clear, they tried to exalt themselves by their efforts, by their works, to boast before God and boast before men that they are holy and set apart. And in reality, what grace does, grace doesn't just deal with the external part of man. It goes deep inside of us and sets us apart and brings us before God. But it's not based on what we have done, but what God has provided through His Son. Yet they tried to do it from the outside in. And really all they ended up doing is trying to put on a facade, a fake facade, a a facade of, of righteousness. But internally, Jesus said they're like tombs full of dead man dead men's bones they would try to look like tombs they would dress up on these days of fast where they would look mournful they would they would look sad they would put ashes on their head they put sackcloth on they would walk around moaning and groaning because they were fasting and God had laid this burden on them and what they were doing in reality was showing before men their their supposed righteousness but in reality God saw their self-righteousness They were trying to find a way to earn God's favor through their efforts and their self-sacrifice rather than trusting in what God promised through His Son's sacrifice that would come. Now, this is all important in relation to Mark 2 because when Jesus confronts these people, this group who are influenced by the Pharisees, It's obvious that the Pharisees themselves over here know what's going on because a little later on in chapter 3, they were resentful for him coming and infiltrating their society and their culture and their religion. And whenever Jesus, if you look through all the Gospels, whenever Jesus shows up, you'll notice one thing over and over again. As he begins to preach, as he begins to teach and talk about God's grace coming to sinners like Levi and like us, the religious ritualists become resentful, as we talked about last week. And and I believe the reason that is so, as we talked about last week, I I believe the reason they're so resentful is because when when they look on the outside holy to everybody else, Jesus knows what they're like on the inside in reality. And when Jesus shows up and begins to preach the message of grace and live a life of righteousness in front of them, he exposes their hypocrisy and their false theology, their distortion of who God is by their actions. He, he exposes them. He, he reveals to the world and Israel that these men are frauds. You know the word hypocrisy simply means play actor. That's what Jesus calls them in Matthew 6. He says, don't be like the Pharisees who go around fasting, mourning, and looking all downcast. They're hypocrites, pretenders. If you have real grace, there is no need for this kind of mourning. If you have a real transformation inside of you, you have a a new spirit, you are clothed in Christ's righteousness, there will be no need for this kind of fasting. There'll be rejoicing and feasting on the grace you've been given. And you won't worry about what other people think. You know that God has graced you with Christ's righteousness. 
therefore you rejoice. But when Jesus shows up, he exposes hypocrisy. He exposes our pretending. In the text in Mark 2, today, 19 to 22, I think Jesus is teaching us many things, but one thing in particular I think stands out. He teaches us that God's grace, God's unmerited favor, God's grace replaces rotting rituals. It causes us to rejoice, but it causes the self-righteous to mourn because we're taking away something that they think would bring them merit before God when we say that grace goes beyond rituals and self-righteousness and human effort. He teaches us here that God's grace replaces rotting rituals with two things. The new cloth of Christ's righteousness. We see that in 2, 19-21. And God's grace replaces rotting rituals with the new wine of the Holy Spirit. Mark 2, 22. These are very important. You can't have one without the other. He came to bring something new, to replace something that was worn out, something that was diluted, something that was wrong. It's not talking about God's law. Jesus came to fulfill the law for us, not replace it. He came to fulfill it. He's talking about self-righteous rituals and traditions. He came to destroy. He came to destroy them because they could do nothing but damn men in the, the thought that they could actually keep these rituals that God didn't even prescribe and yet find some kind of favor with God because of it. And in reality, we know as Christians, even the law of God, which is holy and good and righteous and should be observed and honored, even that we cannot complete on our own. We may want to. We may have the desire because we have this new wine, this new spirit within us because we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We've been regenerated. Yet we know we fall short. But by faith, we look to the one who kept the law for us. And we trust in God's mercy and favor and grace to cover us and to fill us with this desire. In Mark 2.19, Jesus teaches us that God's grace, number one, replaces the rotting garments of self-righteousness with the new cloth of Christ's righteousness. Just look what it says here in 19 and 20. Jesus answers them. He says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests... Fast while the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. To be ready for a wedding in this day, you had to be prepared, you had to be clothed properly. And these weddings weren't the simple wedding that we celebrate today as a one-day affair, which usually lasts about 20 minutes. This was an ongoing event for a week. And they had to be prepared for this. And they were to be prepared for this with joy, not with fasting, not with mourning. They were to be excited. I mean, you have to think about this. In this culture, when a, when a couple got married, they were allowed a week to come together and rejoice with their friends and in reality, you know, back then, as opposed to today, people didn't get vacations twice a year. People didn't get honeymoons. People worked from daylight to dark. And so this event was like one-time event in the person's life. And it was important to gather up people to celebrate this with you, and that those people gathered with you would be joyful with you and dressed appropriately to celebrate, not like the Pharisees mourning with ashes and sackcloth, but with new clothing. That's why I think Jesus uses this illustration in verse 21 in a moment to describe that. They understood the importance of coming prepared and not putting on the old clothes, but being dressed in new clothes. To go to a wedding celebration, you, you never would take your new cloth here and attach it to an old worn out robe over here because it would actually come apart at the seams. They knew this. This group understood this. Again, look what it says in 19. They came to a, a, a place where they would fat, not fast, but they would feast. 
He says, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? They cannot. They cannot fast. Now, it's important that you understand that. Again, you remember they have these two days a week that they have to fast, right? That's what they're required to do according to the Pharisaical law. Well, if a wedding ceremony is a week long, guess what's going to happen in the middle of that week? That law is going to come along and say, i got to fast. So you're in the middle of this great and glorious celebration. You've got to go take off your wedding clothes and put on this old garment and be sad and mourn. And he says, they cannot do that. Now, when he says that, he's actually speaking of a rabbinical law that says, literally, during a celebration of a marriage, everyone, the guests of the bridegroom, the chosen friends, are exempt from fasting. And Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. I am the one who comes to bring you something you cannot earn on your own. And my people will not fast when I am here. I'm about to celebrate our union. I'm about to celebrate what I've come to bring to pass through my grace and through my work. I will unite you to myself. Therefore, they cannot fast. The rabbinical ruling said this, All in attendance of the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. And Jesus is simply saying, in the presence of me, all fasting is forbidden. All mourning is forbidden. I have come to bring joy and grace. And in reality, Israel should have been feasting. With Jesus. They should have received their Messiah like these disciples. The religious leaders should have seen the glorious promise of God in Christ. He is coming as the husband of Israel to bring her back, to bring her salvation. But they weren't feasting, they were mourning over Jesus' presence. Again, because I think Jesus exposed their stains, he exposed their foul religious garments with his presence. They couldn't feast. They had to fast. On the other hand, those who were exposed to his grace were feasting in his presence. Look at, look at Matthew. Look at Matthew 5. Matthew five, seventeen shows us that Jesus exposed the stained garments of those who would want to attend the wedding. He exposed them by by saying about them that they could not attend on their own because they are not as righteous as they think they are. He actually comes to say, I am going to fulfill all righteousness, and the only one who gets to come and be a part of this wedding is a person who will trust in me, not in their own righteousness. Look what it says in 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then he says this. This is the telling verse. For I tell you... Now he's speaking in relation to these religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus is clear that he's going to be the one who fulfills the law for us. Yet the scribes and Pharisees said... They were fulfilling the law for Israel to show them how to follow God. And yet Jesus knew internally they were not following the will of God. They were setting up their own kingdom. They were threatened by him. They were jealous. They were envious of what he was going to do. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not going to heaven. Now, what's he mean by that? Because these guys were outwardly religious. They looked righteous. They looked holy. They looked different than the world. What he's saying is, true righteousness begins on the inside and works its way out. They had it on the outside, but it hadn't worked its way in. And it never could on its own. What they did was they actually added, again, many things to what God had said and distorted the law of God to such a degree that Jesus has to rebuke them here and say, look, they look 
outwardly okay, but in reality, they're full of dead men's bones. They lie to you. That's why he says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, every time you see this, this phrase, you see it there in 21, you see it there in 27, I think you see it again in 33, you see it all the way through this chapter. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He's saying, you have heard the rabbis, you've heard the scribes, you've heard the Pharisees say this, but let me tell you the truth. They're saying this according to their tradition. I'm saying it according to God's word. He is saying these things were said because they were trying to build an outward kingdom, an outward facade. But in reality, God looks at the heart. So they looked like they were okay on the outside, but in reality, they lusted after other things and other people inwardly. And so Jesus raises the bar and says, look, I'm going to exposit to you the law of God. It doesn't just look at the outside. It looks at the heart. If you lust after a person in your heart, you've committed adultery. It's not just the external. It's the internal that God is concerned about. And the internal can never be changed by legalism, by rules, by rituals. It has to be changed by grace. We need a new heart. We need a new spirit. We need a new desire. And that comes through Christ. If you follow the worn-out garments and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, it will lead you to a place that is deadly and dangerous, damnable, separating you from God. If you trust in your own righteousness, you'll never have the righteousness of Christ because you think you're well. In reality, we need Christ because all of our righteousness is foul. It is worn out. It is diluted. Exposure to Christ would eventually transform the Pharisees It transformed their hearts in the sense that it brought out the reality of their hearts. They hated him. And in his presence, that hate finally came to the surface when they crucified him. He knew what was in their hearts. His presence exposed them to righteousness, and they hated it because they couldn't earn it. That's really what he's talking about in Mark 2.20. Christ alludes to the fact that when he exposes these false teachers, eventually his disciples will fast like them. Because when he exposes the false teachers and the Pharisees, eventually they'll kill him. So he's alluding to the fact here in Mark 2.20 that he will be taken away. Now, apart from him being taken away, we would not receive the righteousness that we rejoice in and the grace of God. Though in this day, his disciples, he said, will fast. They will mourn. In 2.20, it says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, this is a shocking statement, and I'm sure that his disciples maybe were a little bit shocked by this as well. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said to them, uh, we're here to feast and rejoice. Now you're saying there's a day coming when we're going to fast because you're going to be taken away? That's what he says. He says to his disciples, you're going to fast when the bridegroom is taken out. The The word there, taken away, is a verb that has the idea in the Greek that means to be snatched away violently. The days will come when the bridegroom will be snatched away violently. Now we have a description of that in prophecy. In Isaiah 53. It's actually the same word there in Hebrew as it is here in Greek. The Messiah will be snatched away, Isaiah says. He will be snatched away violently. In Isaiah 53, actually let's read 7 and 8. He was oppressed... And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is, or that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was, there it is, taken away. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, the people he's talking about there, 
with the religious leaders of Mark's day. They considered Jesus' crucifixion was from God. It was worthy of Jesus because he had claimed to be God. And their self-righteousness, they elevated themselves above the Messiah and said he is cut off, he is defiled, he is wrong. Matter of fact, Jesus goes on to warn in Mark's gospel a couple of chapters over that if you actually say that Jesus was filled with a demon, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. There is no forgiveness of that. They were snatched, he, he was snatched away by their self-righteousness. And interestingly enough, we, we praise God over these two passages in Isaiah. He was snatched away. He was taken away, as Mark says and Isaiah says. He was taken away to a place where you and I deserve to go. He was taken away to the cross so that we could receive God's grace. We could never earn God's favor. So Jesus paid for it with his own blood, with his righteousness. And on that day, his disciples wept and mourned and fasted. The wedding guests would weep that day when Christ was crucified. And they did. But the good news for us is we don't have to weep anymore. We rejoice over that day. I'm going to jump to my last point here in a moment. But we rejoice because in this parable in Mark or this illustration in Mark, we're not the wedding guests. Just remember that. We're not the wedding guests. We are the bride. We are the bride who will never be separated from Christ. His union with His bride is eternal. There will never be a time of fasting for us, only feasting and rejoicing because we're in His presence forever. That's why this is really important when you come to these illustrations and understand that Jesus is saying, this is temporary Because I'm bringing something new in that will transform everything. It'll remove this false system and bring in rejoicing. It'll remove self-righteousness and bring in my righteousness. That's what Mark 2.21, I think, helps us kind of understand. Look with me at that text. This illustration that he gives here. He says, (laughs) he's going to, in his grace, replace this rotting garment of self-righteousness. And he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth, that's new cloth, on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. I mean, this is a pretty self-explanatory illustration. It's it's this cotton that has not been shrunk, and you you put it on this rotted, worn-out garment, and you put it on as a patch, and when you wash it, it shrinks, and it rips a hole in the old garment. It's, It's just simply Jesus saying, look, You can't blend something new with something worn out by sin. You can't blend these two. There's nothing in this worn out garment that will bring anything to God but His wrath. It will not bring you closer to God. It will not bring God closer to you. It will separate you. So therefore, you need something brand new. Not this religious system. Not these traditions. Not this Jewish idea of following all the rules and regulations. Not the Judaizers' idea that circumcision needs to be added to Christ. It's Christ plus nothing that equals everything for us. The reason is our garments could never bring God joy and please Him in any way, according to Isaiah 64.6. Isaiah 64.6 says, There is nothing in our garments that would actually ever do anything but bring God's wrath and rejection upon us. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. This means religiously, ritually polluted. And all our righteous deeds, our our best efforts, our best deed, our most glorious deed of human effort here, are like a polluted Garment. This is a blood soaked, filthy, degrading garment. On our best day, that's what we bring before God, apart from Christ 
We have no kind of garment to bring to God that would please Him. We need a new cloth. We need a new garment. We need one that is greater than our garment, that is stronger than our garment, that is purer than our garment. We don't need the garment of human effort because it is foul in God's nostrils. It's disgusting. He hates it. He can only look to one who has the perfect garment, which is His Son. And in God's grace... That garment is what He lays over all of us who are defiled by our sin and our filth. He gives us a new cloth. Not something to attach to the old religion, to patch up man's religion. Jesus didn't come to do that. He didn't come to patch up. He came to replace it. Again, Mark 2.21 is not talking about God's law. He's talking about the corrupt man-made system of traditions that Judaism attached to itself over time. He's teaching us that the gospel of God's grace cannot be blended with worn-out, rotting garments of our self-righteousness. We have no righteousness apart from Christ. And the righteousness you have now is a foreign righteousness that has been imputed to you, laid to your account, not based on your efforts, or not even your future efforts. It's completely based on Christ and His accomplishment when He became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Mark 2.21, I think, is alluding to in some sense, saying there's a new cloth, an unshrunk cloth. And we know that that unshrunk cloth for us is the righteous, blood-soaked robe of the Holy One, Jesus Christ. If you're still in Isaiah, go back to Isaiah 61. Understand something. This imputed righteousness, this grace of salvation that God gives to foul and polluted people, This isn't a New Testament idea. This is an Old Testament promise. It was completed in Christ. It culminated in Christ. But this is the promise God gave to His people. You, if you have believed and repented of your sins, this promise was for you. This promise was fulfilled by Christ. Look what it says in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For, for, He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And it says, He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He has clothed me. He has covered me covered me with His salvation, with His righteousness. It was always by God's grace that people have been saved. It has never been based on human effort. It is divine achievement, the divine achievement that Christ accomplished. Go back with me to Romans 4. We can see that that's what Abraham believed in. Abraham trusted in God's promise in someone else's merits, someone else's righteousness. And God granted to him that righteousness by faith due to his grace. Romans 4.1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was declared righteous, that's what justified means, by works he has something to boast about. And then he says, but not before God. In reality, because of his defiled garment, he could not boast in his good works. Because God is holy and his best works would be defiled, as it said in Isaiah 61. For what then, or it says, for what does, rather, what, for what does the scripture say? Abraham trusted God. Believed means to trust. Abraham believed God, and it was what? Counted. We could also translate that imputed laid to someone else's account. Faith. Abraham had faith in God. By faith in God, his, his salvation, his justification came to him by trusting in what God would promise. It was counted to him as righteous, righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes, trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, who also speaks 
of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are, notice, covered. Covered in the righteousness of another. Covered in the righteousness that God provides through the sacrifice of His Son. He says, blessed is the man. (laughs) Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Our sins were counted on Christ. All of our sins were dealt with if we are believers. God did not ignore one of them. Not one that you did in the past, not one that you're doing presently, and not one that you'll do in the future. All of those sins were put upon Christ. He counted them all, laid them all to His account, and Jesus received our wrath, the wrath we deserved. And in return, He covered us with His righteous garments, with His righteous works. He covered our filth. It's always been by grace that men are saved. We're always being saved by the work of another, not ourself. The covering that I think Mark's talking about in Mark 2 is, is the new cloth that comes to us by God's grace. It comes to us through Christ's work. And, and that covering, I think in relation to this wedding illustration Jesus is using, I think that covering should cause us to rejoice Because our hearts are now filled with a new spirit, a new desire to worship God because of Christ. We don't have to desire to worship God on our own. God puts a spirit in us that desires it for us when He regenerates us. You see, the religious and the unsaved, they have nothing in their hearts to drive them to worship God. They're just having to grind out their religion to hope that they earn God's favor. But for the person who has been covered in the righteousness of Christ, regenerated by God's grace, He doesn't just change the outer appearance. He fills us with His Spirit. He fills us with this new wine that's powerful, that fills us, that controls us, just like wine will control a drunk. His Spirit now dominates our hearts. We have a new spirit. We have a new righteousness. We have a new spirit. We've been transformed by His grace. And that should cause us to rejoice, especially when we think about that that grace cost Jesus everything. And it cost you nothing. It cost you nothing. You receive everything, but it cost Jesus His life to give it to you. And this should just amaze us as Christians today. We have been given a new cloth. And here in Mark 2.22, we're also given... New wine. He says in 2.22, it says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now Jesus, is, again, he's, he's teaching this group through these two illustrations about the same thing, that through God's grace, things are replaced. God's grace replaces the rotting wine of human effort with the new wine of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a wedding illustration. He's using this very intentionally. He says, the bridegroom's here. I've got new wine because this wine is the best wine. It's the pure wine. It's the kind of wine that you want at a wedding celebration. It is undiluted. It is the best. Just like the wine Jesus granted in his first miracle in John's Gospel. He's teaching that you can't mix something pure with something diluted by sin here. He says, you have to have new wine. You don't need these old traditions. They'll never change the internal desires of sinners. Only grace can do that. And grace comes to us not just in the righteousness of Christ, but by giving us a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, who resides in us, who empowers our hearts inwardly, to long for the law of God, to love the law of God, the the people of God, and the will of God. We need the new wine. That's what he says, not not a diluted wine. Let me give you just a little little history of the importance of new wine and how they they actually made new wine. New wine was, was made by taking the contents and putting them inside of a new wineskin. They put them in this new wineskin to really to purify it, to eventually to, to make it good and undiluted. 
It didn't start out that way. It started out, I mean, just imagine this. They would kill a goat, right? Kill a goat, skin the goat, and then they would sew up the legs of the goat, leave the neck open. They would fill it up. Well, has anybody ever skinned an animal before? You clean it, you clean it, you clean it, and then you pour that wine into it, and wine has a fermenting process that actually causes some things to decay. And so they wouldn't just pop that thing open and say, hey, let's get a drink of that immediately. That would, would be diluted. It would be actually polluted. So they would kill this animal. They would skin it. They would pour this wine into it, the new wine, and they would leave it in that skin for a time period, a certain time period, let it age, and it let the, it let the, the sediments settle into the bottom. The remnants would settle to the bottom of the skin. And then they would actually pour that into another new wine skin. And they would keep doing this process back and forth until all the remnants settled down to the bottom, all the pollution settled to the bottom, and then what was left would be a pure wine. The wineskins would be clean. There would be pure wine that comes out. And if they they put this new wine in an old wineskin, one that had been laying around not being used, that was cracked and dry, when that fermentation process began, it would actually cause it to swell and bust. They would lose the wine that was already purified. They would lose the skin itself. So they had to use new skins. And the reason they did that was because they wanted to protect the pure wine. They wanted to make sure that it was able to be maintained and contained. And so they needed to have a a skin that could stretch and take the power and the pressure that was within. And that's what would happen whenever they would put it in. It would actually swell up. Because there was this internal power, if you will, in the wine as it fermented, as it became pure and powerful. And and Jesus is simply teaching and using this illustration that old skins of man-made religion and human effort could never contain the power of the Spirit. Because man-made religion is cracked, it's leaking, and it'll eventually collapse and burst. But the internal power that He gives us through His Spirit, it comes into us because we have a new life in Christ. It comes into us and it purifies us. And it will transform us as it grows internally, as it swells, as the power is produced internally. It swells up and transforms us from the inside out. The new wine is stronger than the old wine of ritual rule-keeping. The new wine is poured into new vessels who have been regenerated by God's grace so that they could actually receive it internally and the power would transform us completely. Man's heart is transformed by the power of God the Holy Spirit who is poured into us at regeneration. This was something new that they had not understood at this point. And Jesus is saying, these traditions can't change your heart. My spirit goes within the man at regeneration and transforms everything from the inside out. That's what Jesus talked about in John 14. John 14, 15. And just notice this, this statement that he begins with in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, now, wait a minute. I can't keep God's commandments, but he's saying, if I have a love for God, that's going to be what my desire is. If you have a love for God, it's because God has given you his love. God has graced you with his love. And your desire will be to obey his word. So he so says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then he's going to tell you how that's going to be possible. That desire, that desire would be possible. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit of God comes to reside in us so that we will love God and love His commands. He transforms us. This is a new new thought, if you will, to the Pharisees, to this group of people who came to Jesus. Wait a minute. You mean it's not the external transformation you're looking for? He says, no, I'm looking for the internal regeneration and 
basically the work of the Spirit conforming us to Christ. That's what God does when He covers us in His righteousness. Hebrews 10 shows us the result of that. Hebrews 10, 12. As a result of Christ's work, the Spirit takes up residence in us and He transforms our desires. What the law could not do, what rituals could not do, Christ did for us. And then He imputes His righteousness to us and then He fills us with His Spirit to obey what He desires. It says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For if by a single offering he has perfected for all time those, that's you if you believe, who are being sanctified, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I, notice this, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. For the person who has been delivered into salvation by God's grace, there is no need for any offerings. There is no need for any outside traditions. There there is a need only for the new spirit, the new wine that comes into us and transforms our hearts and our minds and conforms us to the image of Christ. That's what He promises us by grace. All of our salvation is a result of God's favor, His unmerited favor. He creates in us a new heart that has new affections. That new heart now longs for the things that God longs for. That that heart now is longing to be filled or dominated or controlled, as Ephesians 5 says, with the Spirit of God, loving one another, singing psalms and praises, glorifying God. That's why, as Christians, we don't come here mournful this morning. We come here joyful this morning. We come here feasting and not fasting this morning. We come here rejoicing because we have a new robe that covers us. And we have new wine that fills us and dominates our desires and our thinking. Again, let me, let me point out one more thing back in Mark. Mark 2. We're reading Mark 2 from the resurrected side of the cross. Remember that. He's writing pre-resurrection, pre-crucifixion. We're not merely the wedding guests in this account. Again, we are the bride of Christ. Therefore, we ought to rejoice even more than the guests here in Mark 2. We now, as Christians, understand that Jesus was taken away to the cross on our behalf so that By God's grace, He would grant to us the eternal promise of life with Christ forever based on Jesus' merits, not our own. Jesus, in Mark 2, is, is telling the Pharisees, the disciples, everyone around Him, that there is great rejoicing for those who trust in God's grace, not in their merits, not anything they've done or anything they would do. It's through what God promised that He would do through His Son that we can now rejoice in as Christians. Jesus' sacrifice promises us that we will feast with Him and celebrate with Him forever over what God has done for us by His grace. If you believe that, I think you need to be willing to go tell people about that this morning, this afternoon, and every day. And if, if, if you read this and you understand what he's saying in light of Levi, it should just amaze you because Levi could bring nothing to God to honor him. And it shows us that Jesus went to him to give him what he could not earn on his own. And he's done that for us, every one of us. And there's nothing that would separate us from him that he hasn't dealt with at the cross. So we need to rejoice in our salvation Rejoice in our sanctification because all of that is of grace. We respond to sanctification because we have a new spirit residing in us that longs for holiness. 
And when we fall short, we don't get down and mourn and moan. We look up and rejoice at the cross because there God was, God was pleased with Christ's sacrifice and not ours. Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that we're reminded again that it's through Christ and his righteousness that we are saved and that you are the one who initiated that by choosing to favor people who could never bring you the honor and praise you deserve apart from your intervention. God, we thank you that you have covered us with a new righteousness, that you have filled us with a new spirit, and that we don't have to go back and try to earn your favor. We could never earn it on our own. We could never keep it on our own. We trust in what Christ has accomplished. We want to rejoice in that and share that with others. We pray faithfully this week in Jesus' name. Amen.